Hi, I'm Helen Avery. And I'm Ryan Jude. And you're listening to Green is the New Finance from the Green Finance Institute. In today's episode, we'll be talking to Dale Vince, founder of Ecotricity and chairman of Forest Green Rovers Football Club, about the transition to net zero, greening the sports industry, and some groundbreaking innovations. The UN knocked on our door about three years ago and said they were thinking of creating this global program to engage sport in the fight against climate change. And they'd seen what we were doing. It was pretty much everything they imagined, you know, could or should be done. And, you know, all of the work that we do at Forest Green Rovers is about energy transport food. It is our sustainability blueprint at Ecotricity, just in the world of football. And, uh, and now it's in the world of sport globally, which is, you know, just an amazing thing. And it all came from an accidental rescue of a, of a local football club. very warm welcome everyone and a happy new year to you all thanks for joining us today and a happy new year to you ryan how is 2021 treating you so far cheers helen a very happy new year to you as well uh 2021's going well so far i feel everyone's returned very energized for it and ready to make real change how the first few weeks been for you so far so good thank you very much and um yeah energized indeed and with cop 26 coming up it's going to be such an important year so very excited Yes, exactly. And to kick off this very important year, we have an amazing first guest, Dale Vince. Indeed, yeah. I have to say, I'm I'm a little bit in awe of our guest today. Um, where do we begin with what we can talk to him about? Um, firstly, he is founder of Ecotricity. It's the world's first green and vegan energy company, as well as developer of just some far out and incredible green technology like Sky Diamonds, for example, which I'm sure he'll talk, talk to us about. Um, and Ryan, I'm guessing you're thrilled to be talking to him about football. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I can't wait. I've been following Dale and Forest Green Rovers for a while now. Obviously, I work in green finance and football is my big passion and they are where they meet. Um, he's been chairman of Forest Green Rovers for a few years now and they've gained quite the international following since then. Um, and he's made them the world's greenest football club. Wow. And that's not my words, it's FIFA's. <laughs> they've also received acknowledgement from the UN I'm from the world's media and can't wait to speak to Dale about how he's managed this. And on top of that, he he managed to get written a book, which was released at the end of the uh, end of last year called Manifesto, which recommends a plan of action for us all to reach net zero. But let's get him on so he can tell us about all his work himself. So, Dale, welcome to Green is the New Finance, our first guest of 2021. How are you doing today? Whoop. I'm happy to be your first guest of 2021. <laughs> happy New Year, Dale. So, Dale, it's hard to know where to begin, um, but let's start with clean energy before we attempt to make a, a seamless jump into the football side of things, which I can't wait to, to talk about. So, you left school at 15, were living in a van powered by a, powered by a windmill, and in the mid-1990s, were inspired to go bigger and build commercial wind monitoring equipment and to start a renewable energy company, Ecotricity, the world's first green energy supplier. Could you just tell us about how that vision and journey came to fruition? I'll try to give you a part version. So, yeah, I did leave school 15, um, kind of spent some time looking around to find out what it was I wanted to do, found myself kind of bumping into authority and and kind of um, pressure to conform, to get a job, to have a career and that kind of stuff, which I didn't want to do because I just wanted to be free to look around and, and find what it was I really did want to do. And um had seen people at festivals I'd been to that looked like they were living permanently on the road in buses and stuff. And I thought this must be the way to go. So that's how I began the journey of living on the road, which lasted for about 10 years. 
And by the end of it, I had a little windmill on my trailer, I had some old train batteries underneath it. And I was using wind power to power my trailer, but also in some ventures, like I ran a thing called Wind Phones at Glastonbury in 1991, I think it was. I thought I could uh, spend another 10 years living a low-impact lifestyle myself, or I could drop back in and try and build a big windmill, because I'd just seen the big windmills built in Cornwall, Britain's first, and I was kind of inspired by the idea, and that was my simple starting thought. That was the early 90s. It took to 1996 to build that first windmill. Along the way, I just learned so much about wind energy and finance and planning and grid and all that kind of stuff, and then it seemed natural to kind of build some more, but... Um, getting a fair price for the power was the big obstacle then. And I went to see the local power company. They were a monopoly buyer. They treated it like a joke. They actually laughed at the idea of green energy. And the industry was just liberalizing. It was just possible to become an energy supplier. So I left that meeting uh, having determined that the only way to do this now was to cut out the middleman, to become an energy company, to sell this new kind of power to people, green energy. And that was 1995. Uh, so that's how it all began. That's the potted history of the first 30 years of my life. <laughs> Incredible. Um, I bet they're kicking themselves now, whoever whoever laughed you out of their office. Um, <laughs> how times change. They actually came to see me maybe uh, maybe five years later, and uh, it was it was quite sweet and poignant, and they, they just wanted to know if there were things we could do together on this kind of green stuff, you know. <laughs> <laughs> uh, and so others have obviously followed in your footsteps since, but you're still this incredible leading green energy company in Britain and um, and also the only energy company recognised by the Vegan Society for supplying and generating vegan electricity. I know that's um, is, is a really important thing for you, but I had no idea vegan electricity was a thing. Can you just briefly explain how electricity might not be vegan? Yeah, and gas as well. I mean, it, we knew that it was happening to a degree, that people were using animal body parts to make electricity or to make gas. Uh, actually, you usually make gas first and then turn it into electricity. Um, what we hadn't realized was the scale of it until we started looking. So from the get-go, we've always excluded it from our power sources. We are pretty uh, rigorous, as you might imagine, about where we'll take energy from. But it, as we dug into it, we found it was a really big deal, and, and it had become big enough to affect the energy supply of millions of people in Britain. And we realized that a lot of vegans unwittingly had, had done everything they could see to avoid animal products, but they were powering their homes with electricity or gas. Uh, Scottish, uh, I think it was SSE, Scottish and Southern Energy, were the example that broke in the press that year. It was two or three years ago now. Uh, they were using uh, fish parts from fish farming. Other people use uh, residue from abattoirs, um, and, and other people use um, animal slurry from intensive farming, which is still you know, a non-vegan outcome, but it's at least not body parts. But generally, that's how it works. Uh, unless your company takes care and has a policy to exclude animal products from its um, supply chain, which we do. And we're the only people to do it. I mean, pfft. yeah, I have to say, I'd, I'd never, I, I am almost vegan. I'd say 90% of the time vegan. And I was absolutely shocked. I had no idea this was even happening. So yeah. I'm thrilled that you brought that to light. Um, and I want to talk a bit about the the model of ecotricity. Um, I, I think it's just fascinating. Bills for mills. Uh, can you tell us a bit more about bills for mills and and why that's important in the broader clean energy amb ambitions for the UK? Yeah, we call it bills into mills, and and really it's about taking the revenue from our customers' energy bills and turning it into windmills. Uh, 
then we uh, that was the beginning then it was sun mills now we now we have green gas mills as well because we've pioneered a new way to make gas which is to use grass to do that and i mean essentially it's about reinvesting the money that you make and, and i probably just need to rewind to to the kind of uh the principal approach that we have for us business is a tool it's a means to an end business is a tool to fight climate change that's what we were founded for to change the way energy was made um and very quickly that evolved into a, a stance on business because there's a lot of things that business does in the world that's bad and that's because it's driven by making money and if you have making money as your outcome your goal in life then you make bad decisions and those decisions will reflect badly on people and on the environment um so we're a very different kind of company we're mission led one of the early strap lines we used to have about ourselves was that we're environmentalists doing business we're not a business doing the environment it was an important distinction 20 years ago i think it's just as important today but more and more businesses are piling into this space and and actually i don't really mind why as long as they're doing it properly I love that environmentalists doing business, and now we're seeing more businesses yeah. also doing environmental. But it needs environmentalists doing business to really, you know, lead the way. So on that, the wider UK picture, obviously, you've just put out your book manifesto, talking about, you know, how it's been in the past and what you see coming in the future. But where do you think the UK currently is on the clean energy journey, on the green agenda? I tend to look through or look at this issue in, in three big sectors energy transport and food as, as if you've read the book you'll see that so i would say overall we have everything that we need we have the technology uh, it's more economic to do things the right way than the way that we're currently doing them it's not just better for the environment and better for our health but it, it's better for our economy when it comes to energy in electricity we're at about 40% renewable energy on the grid now when i began it was 1 or 2% it was big scale hydro from just after the second world war so not modern renewable energy so we've come an awful long way in 20 odd years um green gas is barely going but we have the potential we have we have enough spare land to grow enough grass to power all of our homes with uh, with gas and obviously in renewable energy we have wind and sun we have an abundance of it is the cheapest form of energy we can have so put the two together in terms of electricity and gas we have everything we need to power our entire country and fighting the climate crisis becomes the icing on the cake to an enormous change in our economy we'd create hundreds of thousands of truly sustainable jobs so in energy that's where we are in transport we have to electrify everything um the electrification of cars is well underway as you'll know buses are on the road hgvs are coming and even planes are in the skies and 10 years from now the big plane makers say that they will have electric aircraft that can carry 2 or 300 people across Europe in food is the dead simplest thing that we can do just stop eating animals you know but the impacts are profound not just on our own health most of the chronic illnesses that affect us in life uh, you know come from diet uh, heart disease cancer diabetes you know you name it uh, so it'll improve our health reduce our health costs that's one big thing obviously there's a huge animal cruelty issue the use of water pollution that comes from factory farming but the magic uh, huge final piece of the jigsaw is that we can free up 75% of our farmland if we just eat plants and not animals that's half the land mass of our country which we can give back to wildlife and for me that's the, that's the the magic of the puzzle when we make these changes in any transport and food we also make space for nature and uh, one last point we we create room for carbon sinking indigenous carbon sinking so as we plot to get to net zero by whichever date you choose the last maybe 5% of our carbon emissions will be really hard to get to 
but we can get to them with indigenous carbon sinking. I mean, it's magic. And, and it, it probably shouldn't be surprising. It was to me when I discovered this whole picture. It shouldn't be surprising when you realize that the two things driving all of the crises we face are the mass burning of fossil fuels and, and the mass farming of animals. And so when you stop doing those, all of the crises unwind. But Dale, it's, it's so inspiring hearing you speak about so much with such passion. And um, we're certainly on the same page with a lot of this as well. You know, we think that every single sector needs to be attacked, as you said, systematically. So I wanted to touch on some of the innovations that you've been working on. And I wondered if we can talk about Ecolab. Um, some amazing things happening on the ground. The electric superbike, Greenbird wind-powered car, Nemesis, the electric supercar, Britwind, small urban wind turbines, and of course, sky diamonds are these pet projects or are these like prototypes for real solutions can you can you share a, a bit more about some of these incredible inventions yeah they all began life from a kind of sustainability point of view so the, my journey at ecotricity began trying to change the way electricity was made that was because the way electricity was made was the biggest single source of carbon emissions in britain back then in the mid 90s in the early 2000s, I went look at, looking for the second and third biggest, figuring that we had an answer for the first one and it was underway. It made sense to do that. And I found it was transport and food. And quite magically, the energy, transport and food together made 80% of everybody's personal carbon footprint. And so while it made great sense to look at the biggest first, it made great sense to look at the big three. And so in 2008, we conceived of the nemesis. I wanted a greener car. And there were none, no electric cars in the world that you could buy. So we said, let's make one. How hard can it be? It took two years. It was that hard. We got it on the road in 2010, Britain's first electric supercar, just as the Nissan Leaf was hitting the road and just as the Tesla Roadster hit the road. And our experience of having the Nemesis on the road uh, led us to understand that charging infrastructure was the next frontier. We could see the big manufacturers getting ready to make electric cars. They were coming. But people were not buying cars because there was nowhere to charge or they were less likely to. And people weren't building somewhere to charge because there were no cars on the road. I mean, there were literally a handful of cars on the road. So we conceived then of the electric highway as a national network for charging points of cars. It's probably the first in the world. And that's been running now for nearly 10 years. And we're delivering about now 2 million miles of emission-free driving every month. And we power it with the wind and sun, which is the kind of really important final piece of that particular puzzle just having an electric car is good but you've got to run it on renewable energy to get a full zero emission benefits from it and then fast forward we got distracted uh, i'm a biker I, I still want a serious electric bike but there are none in the world so it's called the iron horse um and the guy that designed the nemesis uh, for me is, is working on it and i hope we get it on the road later this year uh, and then we moved into food i've been a vegan for like i don't know 40 years or something like that and so for a long time, food for us was an advocacy thing, something that we talked about. Uh, and then Forest Green came along in 2010, our rescue mission football club, and we found ourselves catering, um, which immediately put this issue kind of front and center, and we had to take the, take the club vegan. And so that became a very practical thing we were doing on the food front, as well as, well as a great demonstrator, uh, as it turned out, and we hadn't realized. And then coming out of Forest Green, we created something called the Devil's Kitchen, which is a uh, uh, a place where we make um, primary school dinners because we figured that that was an important space, actually giving kids good food. And that rapidly grew to secondary schools, universities and other football clubs and um, and in retail this month in January, in fact. Just on this, um, to, on the innovations, and it sounds a lot like what you're saying is it's a lot of research and development that helps you with a, a much bigger agenda um, 
some of the things you've been doing. But, you know, how, how have you found the access to capital to support your innovation or green tech innovation more broadly in the UK? Is, there, is it challenging? I, I guess the um, our use of capital has been really limited to um, project finance to build stuff wind farms, solar farms, that kind of stuff. What we've not done is raised equity, for example. Uh, we issued some mini bonds uh, quite a while ago now, maybe 10 years ago. I think we issued the first green mini bond uh, called Eco, Eco Bond, actually. <laughs> and uh, we went on to issue five in total. It was so runaway popular. The idea there was to give our customers and other people the chance to be a part of the green revolution from a financial point of view. We took that money, invested it in our projects and stuff, including some of our Ecolabs work. And... Just to come back to your point, kind of the Ecolabs outcomes do help us on our sustainability mission. Um, and, and sometimes, you know, we start off deciding like we need to make a car, for example. But at other times, we it comes to us from the side, like the Devil's Kitchen thing. It just it just happened. Uh, and Sky Diamonds, uh, for example, that was just uh, a thought I had 10 years ago about geoengineering. How do we get carbon out of the atmosphere? And I thought... That's great. You know, there are lots of different ways we could do it. But once we've taken it out, we've got to lock it up forever uh, or for as long as possible. And because the natural thought is, you know, what's the most enduring form of carbon that we know of? It's a diamond. And I thought, well, that would be amazing to be able to do that. Seven years ago, we started an R&D journey to try and find a way to do that. And about two years ago, we uh, we started making them and perfecting the recipe. And we launched it last October. It started out as a project to... Um, take carbon from the atmosphere and lock it up. What we discovered was that diamonds contain a really small amount of carbon. It's quite incredible. So a single carat of diamond probably has got, uh, in its own body, has probably got about one, one gram of carbon. There's another three or four grams associated with that that we take from the atmosphere. Um, so there's four or five grams in total. But if you look at a gram of mine diamond, what we found was that the the, the big impact was the avoided impact. So you have to dig 1,100 tons of rock and soil to make a single tiny carrot of diamond. And you have to use 4,000 liters of water and produce half a ton of greenhouse gas emissions. And so we found that we, we had come up with a way to make diamonds from a, from a different way to avoid this huge mined impact. And it gave us a new frontier to call for the end of diamond mining to say we no longer need to do that because we can mine the sky. All of our ingredients come entirely from the sky, wind, sun, rain, and carbon dioxide. That's it. And, you know, I, I think it's a 21st century industrial process or technology approach to how we solve the issue of living sustainably, you know, because it's, it's important that it's not about giving stuff up. It's a key part of our message. Living a green life isn't about giving stuff up. It's just about doing stuff differently, whether it's burgers, cars, football, and now diamonds. There's a, there's a more way to do it. Fantastic. Can we buy these diamonds yet? Uh, soon, soon, coming soon. <laughs> Great. Well, Dave, we've heard all about your your amazing innovations, but now to come to the football that we briefly touched on earlier, your Rescue Mission Football Club, as you, as you put it earlier in the podcast. <laughs> yeah. So, yeah. look, on, on the face of it, the, the move to football seems quite different from everything you've been doing previously, yet, as you said, in 2010, you did become chair of Forest Green Rovers. Some of the things you've introduced has seen FIFA describe you as the world's greenest football club and the UN has made you the world's first certified carbon neutral football club. Mm. What made you one day think, you know what, I've, I'm done with electricity, gas, I'm going to look at greening football now? 
<laughs> well, I didn't, you see. Um, <laughs> so I describe it in my book as a, a serendipity, really. You know, So it's a local football club to us in our backyard. And at the time, it was 120 years old. And the guys reached out. We'd seen they were in trouble from the local newspapers, financial trouble, and on the pitch as well. And they reached out summer of 2010 and said, uh, you know, can we have a chat? Maybe you could help us. I went to see them. It was a lovely place, lovely people. And uh, they said, oh, we need 30 grand cash flow to get through the summer. And I thought we should do this because, you know, because we can actually. And and it would be a nice thing to do. So we did that. End of the summer, the story had moved on a little bit. And it was clear that 30 grand wasn't anywhere near the extent of the problems. And and then one day in October, I think, they said to me, you should become chairman. And I was like, oh, my God, I really shouldn't because I've got so much to do. Uh, but, you know, I couldn't contemplate that. Uh, but it was quickly a choice between um, taking responsibility to the club or walking away certain that it would fall over, uh, which seemed wrong. And so just entered it that way and almost day one bumped into the fact that we were serving red meat to our players. It was a beef lasagna. I, you know, I sat in the main suite chatting to the uh, to the manager and the chef wheeled it out. And I was horrified because it made me part of the meat trade. And <laughs> we sat down with the chef and the manager immediately and said look i need to change this uh you know what do you think about it and they were both like yeah no problem so um we took red meat off the menu that day the sun called it the red meat ban turned it into a huge thing which we loved that was that was fine because it gave uh it gave us a platform for the conversation and then we took um we took the whole club our fan base on a, on a journey from that point to veganism over a period of about three seasons and that was it really job done we were a vegan football club which turned out to be uh the most interesting thing for the world's media that you could imagine that we could imagine you know our, <laughs> our global media reach has been several billions per year since then and, and still we have tv crews from japan or russia or somewhere like that attending our open days and still we get the question how do you how do you run a vegan football club it's been 10 years guys i say to them, <laughs> do you know what i mean it's kind of like it's, it's no big deal <laughs> Uh, but it's, it still is a big deal. And, you know, the UN knocked on our door about three years ago and said um, they were thinking of running this or creating this global uh, program to engage sport in the fight against climate change. And they'd seen what we were doing. It was pretty much everything they imagined, you know, could or should be done. So we went to meet them in Bonn and met with a few other sports organizations. Like I think I remember the Japanese FA were there and the San Francisco 49ers. And we just had a chat about what the program could look like. We became founding signatories of it. And, um, you know, all of the work that we do at Forest Green Rovers is about energy, transport and food. It is our sustainability blueprint at Ecotricity just in the world of football. And, uh, and now it's in the world of sport globally, which is, you know, just an amazing thing. And it all came from an accidental rescue of a, of a local football club. I love that. An accidental rescue. And there's, there's going to be yeah. many avid football fans listening to this, even myself, who would love to own a football club. You know, we're actively seeking out, but you accidentally fall into it. And not just that, revolutionized it, completely revolutionized it. So you've mentioned there a few of the things that you've done, but also the fact that you've had all this huge media interest. As we're a green finance podcast, we like to touch on the financial benefits of the of the businesses we talk to. How have you seen this grow Forest Green Rovers revenues, sponsorship opportunities? Surely it's been huge. It's something that we've really noticed in the last Oh, two or three years maybe that that it's really begun to get traction so our, our first big sponsor was corn that probably goes back about three years and we thought we'd hit the big time you know it's like a big international name in the last couple of years since then we've we've just kind of uh, got a collection of um 
sponsors and brands, you know, in including in finance, actually, a company called Candrium, who you may know of since it's your space. Uh, some big, big fund managers, as I understand it, who've got a sustainability agenda. Uh, Innocent were the latest people to jump on board and sponsor our stadium. Uh, we've got like vegan cheese manufacturers and beer makers and uh, clothing brands and all sorts of people. But um, what's really interesting is in the pandemic during lockdown since March, we've doubled our sponsorship over the previous year. So while a lot of other football clubs have been struggling and talking about struggling and having reduced income. We've been here absolutely by the lack of gates of people coming to games, but we've seen a doubling of the sponsorship of our club. And what I think is happening is that the demand for green products is on the rise. It has been for a while now, and more and more businesses are piling in and making goods and offering services that are green and sustainable in some way, shape or fashion. And they're looking for somewhere to 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 display that you know to to get some exposure and some credibility you know the, the way sponsorship works um and there's us in football there's us i mean who else is there so we're a kind of magnet for that kind of stuff right now and i think we're if you if you look at the classic hockey stick exponential curve i think we're right at the heel of that in terms of the potential for this i think it's just about to take off and we're starting to feel that now it's very exciting uh, because it's a, for me, it's a symptom of the direction of travel of the world. When the business world gets it, you know there's something going on uh, because they're driven by what people want. And um, and I love it. And, and just to be clear, it's not just about the vegan food at the club, is it? You've got solar, uh, I've got sustainable wood, there's bam- bamboo T-shirts. Is that, is that's right. That- <laughs> that's right. Yeah. That's right. We we look at everything. I mean, our big three pillars are energy, transport, and food. Uh, but actually, yeah, we have bamboo in our football shirts. We that's a big innovation from us about two years ago. Um, and we've done all the usual stuff of banning single-use plastics. We've taken sugar as well out of our fizzy drinks and stuff. Uh, we we introduced a reverse sugar tax so that we made uh, water cheaper than than fizzy drinks and that kind of stuff significantly. And so we kind of take care of, of everything, including actually people's health. You know, it's not just about the environment. When we when we look at what we put into our food, it's about healthy ingredients uh, because diet is such an important thing. Uh, yeah, we do a lot of stuff. One risk that you know that really gets discussed uh, when it comes to sporting events is, is climate risk. You know, um, mm. Ryan was sharing with me earlier that a quarter of English league football grounds are at risk of flooding um, by 2050. I mean, do you think sport as an industry needs to wake up to play a larger role in climate? I do, and I think sport has a unique opportunity uh, in terms of the, the leadership role that it can play because it has a platform. You know, literally billions of people around the world are fans of some sport, one sport or another, um, and tend to look up to the clubs they follow or the the stars of the clubs that they follow. And so there's an opportunity and a responsibility, I would say, on the part of sports and sports people to to lead and to show leadership on on the climate. I think the the flooding statistic is interesting, but it's kind of it's like um, I think almost it's misdirection. And and I think almost a mistake to try and engage sports in the climate crisis because of their own vested interests. I think we need to approach it from from a different perspective. Sport has a responsibility to lead and do the right thing, not because it's the right thing for sport, not because 25% of clubs may have a flooded pitch in 50 or 30 years, um, but because it's the right thing to do. And I think that's the way to engage more sports 
than uh, than saying you know your your pitch might flood in thirty years, mate, if you don't do something. Because <laughs> actual problem with that is that the the impact that a single club can have won't avoid the flooding of their own pitch. Uh, so making that kind of link isn't very helpful. Uh, that's my own personal opinion. But I think through sport, we can reach the billions of people as sports fans and try to make them fans of the environment. That's the key. On galvanizing the entire sports industry then, you know, when, when the UN named Forest Green Rovers the first carbon neutral sports club, you said, and I, I quote you here, it's great to be first. <laughs> it's great to be first, but I believe it's only a matter of time before the big boys like Real Madrid Man United and San Francisco 49ers follow our example. Now, I would love it if, if Man United is my club, right? I'm, I'm from up north and I've supported them my whole life. I would love to see them coming out positively for this. What else can these big sports clubs do today and what's stopping them currently doing it? What's stopping sport probably is not a lot different to what's stopping most people. And the, the first key to that, I think, is to have information, to have access to the picture that says, look, these are the issues and this is what you can do about it. This is what we give our fans at Forest Green, and we've seen that there's stuff that they can do in that space. So for other football clubs, it always comes down to energy, transport, and food. Look at how you power yourself, how you travel, and what you eat. And we're seeing it happen. So Arsenal, a couple of weeks ago, signed up to the Sport for Climate Action program. Chelsea opened a vegan-only food stand in February, I think it was, just before the first lockdown. It's super amusing because the publicity picture that went with that, that hit the media, had a guy standing at the front of the queue in his forest green scarf. So, you know, change is coming, absolutely. You know, Premier League Club has the, um, has the wherewithal to tackle these issues. A, a, Typical question that I'm asked is, it's all very well what Forest Green are doing, but can it scale to a big club? Is it feasible? And I say, actually, the problem is the other way around. If you try to do it with a smaller club, it's harder. If you go to a bigger club, it's easier because there's more wherewithal to tackle the same problems. One thing that, that has interested me recently is in the 2020 annual review of football finance published by Deloitte, they essentially said that without guidelines from the likes of UEFA, FIFA, the FA, or, you know, in effect, regulation, the bigger clubs who haven't yet made these initial positive steps just won't do it. Do you think this sort of regulation would help? Do you think it's arguably the answer? Yeah, I would disagree with the statement that without it, nothing will happen because we're seeing it happen already. I think I yep. would agree with the statement that says with, with it, we can move faster. No doubt about that. And one of the things we lobbied uh, for in, in the early meetings with the UN was to get the organizing bodies of sport to set sustainability criteria. So, for example, our ground in League Two has to meet certain grading criteria. And our argument is let's add sustainability to that. Let's add recycling facilities, for example. Let's add vegan options on the menu, for example. Um, and that way you, you get it in at the kind of grassroots regulatory level. Um, so, yeah, absolutely, these regulatory bodies have got a role to play. I know the EFL are looking at it. We've been lobbying the FA uh, or helping other people to lobby the FA to join the UN program. And uh, I know that UEFA are about to undertake something of their own on the sustainability front because we've been quite close to them. And um, it's coming. But yeah, absolutely. If we could get it into the regulations of sport, it will come faster. Great. Mm, fantastic. Dale, before you leave, um, at the end of the podcast, we try to show people at home how they can make a difference in their day-to-day -day life. Not everyone can be a politician or own a football club, but they can still make daily changes. You've mentioned mm. multiple things, veganism, you know, changing to an electric car, but specifically for, I guess, grassroots football clubs and grassroots sports clubs, what would you recommend they do day one to instigate their members and their supporters? 
I would I'd say the same to everybody in every circumstance. Look at energy, transport, and food. Look at how you power yourself. That could be at home or as a business. Look at how you travel and look at what you eat. It's actually really easy. And 80% of all of our carbon footprints are in those three things. And they're driven every day by the decisions we make, the money that we spend. We have enormous power to change the way the world works in this way. Fantastic. Very inspiring, especially at the start of the year as people are sitting down thinking about the changes they're going to make. It normally involves health and spending. So, uh, which is all of those <laughs> yes. things. Dale, thanks so much for joining us. It's been such a pleasure. Um, and congratulations on, on your book and all the work you're doing. We're really excited to follow you as you continue with all your work. Thank you both. It's been a really fab conversation. So thanks for having me. Great. Cheers, Dale. Wow, what an incredibly inspiring man, really pioneering the green agenda across so many sectors with such positivity. Ryan, what do you think? What a guy. (laughs) What a guy. (laughs) (laughs) Just shows what you can achieve if you actually seize the initiative and just get out there and do. Yeah, and so many interesting ways of changing behavior, like the reverse sugar tax on the drinks at the club and the introduction of vegan food. Um, Maybe they'll get some new followers over Veganuary. Um, But I also really liked this point on ensuring there were specific metrics included in the sustainability standards for clubs, because that's going to have such a big impact. Um, But what were your key takeaways, Ryan? Well, you know I'd love to bang on about the football part of it, (laughs) but there was more than just that. But whilst we're on sports clubs, um, I really enjoyed the part around how sports clubs are important for inspiring people. They have such reach and that almost gives them a responsibility to be greener. And on the green finance side, of course, it's interesting to note the additional sponsorship revenues that they had, which shielded them from what was quite a dire and turbulent year in terms of finances for football clubs. Um, But sports aside, the overarching message, I think, of everything he was saying was summed up when he said, business is a tool to fight climate change. And to be honest, we need all business leaders to realize this. Well, hopefully a few of them will listen to this podcast and feel really inspired. I know I do. He really does sort of leave you feeling like, what difference can I make? And of all years, this is the year to do it because we've got COP26 in Glasgow. Should we forget in November? So Brilliant. Let's get it done. And, and speaking of looking ahead, uh, we've got some great guests lined up for you. So stay tuned. Yeah. So to catch all of our guests and to hear more from the two of us, do hit subscribe and follow us on wherever you get your podcasts. And thank you for joining us for this episode of Green is the New Finance. Green is the New Finance is brought to you by the Green Finance Institute with audio production by Fairly Media.